Today, we'll be talking about Gerald Horn's new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome back to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're joined once again by prolific author, Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. Let's talk about your book. I'm looking at my own library, and I have numerous books by you, Gerald. And of course, as our audience might be aware, but for those who might not, you're a prolific author, historian. You're living in Texas. You've written a book now about Texas, and in particular, what happened, what you call the counter-revolution of 1836, and link it to the roots of U.S. fascism, which, of course, is a topic that is on everyone's mind, especially in the last couple of years. Let's first talk about how you decided to write the book and the basic thesis of the book, and then I'll I'll ask you some follow-up questions. Well, thank you. I decided to write the book because I see my presence here in Texas and my ability to conduct research, in fact, all over the world, as a result of struggle, particularly by Black people in Texas, to put me into this position. And so this book, in some ways, is my attempt to pay back, pay forward those who put me in this position, although I recognize ultimately it's a debt that can never be repaid. With regard to the thesis, as the title suggests, this book should be seen as complementary to my earlier book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776. What I mean is that just as in 1776, you had settlers who revolted against European rule, not least so they could engage in further land grabs and engage in further enslavement of Africans, Ditto in 1836, except in this case, you see the settlers led by Stephen F. Austin, Sam Houston et al., who then ostentatiously affixed their names to major cities after they triumphed. They revolt against Mexican rule, not least because Mexico, under a president of African descent, speaking of Vicente Guerrero, had moved to abolish slavery. Slavery was the business model of these settlers in Tejas or Texas. And so they revolted against Mexican rule and set up the so-called Republic of Texas, 1836 to 1845. The Republic of Texas distinguished itself as a major slave trading enterprise. The Lone Star flag of the Republic of Texas could be found off the coast of Angola, off the coast of Brazil, off the coast of Cuba indicative of their slave trading prowess. And the Republic of Texas was also a genocidal enterprise, a genocidal enterprise against the indigenous population in the first place. And certainly if we 
are concerned about the rise of fascism, as I'm sure your audience is, particularly in light of these hearings about January 6, 2021, and the collaboration of the 45th U.S. president with neo-Nazi forces in order to maintain power, then we have to look at the history of genocide and mass enslavement in this part of North America, because I think that it forms the backdrop, if you like, to what's going on in the United States today. Yeah, let's talk about how this struggle has been presented in popular culture in the United States. You know, as a kid, Gerald, you know, people rarely went to movie theaters, but when they did, movie theaters were these big, grand, you know, buildings. And I can remember one of the first movies I ever saw was was The Alamo. And we all were taught to love the settlers, the colonialists, the colonists in the Alamo. Again, when you think about what actually happened, and of course, what happened to black people in Texas, what happened to the indigenous population, and what happened to Mexico. And then you think about the way whole generations in the United States have been spoon-fed this kind of sugar-coated narrative about something that constitutes perhaps the vilest conduct by human beings. Anyway, let's talk about that popular narrative, how that evolved, and what your book tries to do with it. Yes, I assume you're making reference to the propagandistic movies about Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, a Disney production. I assume you're referring to some of the hagiography concerning uh, slave traders like the Bowie brothers, for example, all of the foregoing involved in this looting and plundering of Mexico. But despite all of the horrors that these settlers inflicted upon this part of North America, I think it's probably fair to say that the most horrific is what befell the indigenous population. And I think it's due in part to the fact that the Comanches, who were a major force in this part of North America uh, approximately 200 years ago, were a militant and fearsome fighting force. And I think that the fact that they were such a formidable antagonist to the settlers helped to bring out a kind of bloodlust in the settlers, helped to bring out a genocidal impulse in the settlers. But it was not just the Comanches, there were also the Cado, C-A-D-D-O, who had an interlocking directorate with uh, black people, for example, as a fighting force. Also in the west of Texas, there were the people we refer to as the Apache. And then what happens as well between 1836 and 1845 with the establishment of the so-called Republic of Texas, an independent country, this independent country saw itself, interestingly enough, as a rival to the United States of America, which makes uh, this blather about so-called patriotism in Texas rather curious, to put it mildly. And it also puts a new spin on what happened at the Republican Party convention in Houston just a few days ago when the delegates 8,000 strong 
voted to put forward a resolution as soon as next year calling for secession of Texas from the United States and once again, reestablishment of the so-called Republic of Texas. Now, I know that there are some in your audience who are probably saying good riddance to bad rubbish, but if history is any guide, what will happen is that the Republic of Texas will revert to what it did in the 19th century, begin to conspire with foreign powers against the United States of America. So as Lyndon Johnson once said, it's better to have these freebooters inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. But in any case, you need to keep in mind that when the Republic of Texas decided to enter the Union in 1845, it was with reluctance. The reluctance being that they were under fire by abolitionists worldwide. They were under fire from abolitionists in Mexico. They were under fire from abolitionists in revolutionary Haiti. They were under fire from abolitionists in London. And so they could not stand the pressure. So they crawled into the Union and then became this hawkish militaristic force within the United States of America, spearheading the further war against Mexico, 1846 to 1848, which then led to the United States seizing what is now the richest and most populous state, speaking of California, not to mention what is now most of the U.S. Southwest, including New Mexico, Arizona, et cetera. And of course, the story continues because to this very day, Texas, as represented by the oily Senator Ted Cruz, is still a major force of reaction in the United States of America. And as was said in the 19th century by U.S. abolitionists who opposed the admittance of Texas into the United States, the question was stark and clear. Either we will corral Texas or Texas will corral us. And I'm afraid to say it seems to be the latter that is unfolding as we speak. Texas has the largest black population of any state in the United States. I believe I'm correct there. Is that right? Absolutely, it does. And that's another reason why I have to say uh, I'm personally against this idea of secession, because I'm quite nervous and anxious about what will befall the black population, including yours truly if somehow they manage to pull off a pro-secession referendum. I mean, do you believe it's serious? I mean, the fact that the Republican Party formally voted to support or to uphold the right of Texas to secession, I mean, it would sound pretty ominous given the fact that the Republicans, at this point at least, control the state. But what's motivating it? What's How serious is it? And then when you look at the demographics, Gerald, in Texas in particular, it's clearly shifting. It's clearly changing. The state population, I think, is also growing faster than any other state in the country. But let's talk about those issues a little bit. Well, certainly the demographic makeup of Texas is changing. But those of us who are familiar with the history of white minority rule in Southern Africa recognize that you do not necessarily need a majority of so-called settlers in order to perpetuate tyrannical rule. Secondly, with regard to what's behind this, well, I think that 
in one sense, it's not really thought through very carefully and clearly. On the other hand, just as in the 19th century, one of the reasons why Texas decided to lead the charge towards civil war was because it was suffering capital loss insofar as thousands of enslaved Africans were fleeing across the border to abolitionist Mexico, and Texas felt that Washington was cavalier with regard to retrieving its lost capital, its lost property, the bodies of these enslaved Africans. And Texas felt that either A, it would have a better shot of keeping these enslaved Africans within the borders of Texas if A, Texas remained within the Confederate States of America, or B, if Texas uh, was independent, which was not ruled out even in the 19th century. And another point that uh, I make clear in this book is that even after the plundering of Mexico in the 19th century, the aforementioned seizure of California, for example, that post-1865, there was still a felt desire to seize more Mexican territory. And if you look at your newspapers in the last few days, you will see that the U.S. administration is challenging Mexico because of opposition to Mexico's state control of oil. Recall that that happens in the 1930s under uh, President Cárdenas. And I dare say that the Texas oil men have not relinquished their felt desire to seize more Mexican territory and to seize Mexican oil. Now, I know that sounds outlandish given the present correlation of forces, but then again, it seemed outlandish to many in 1861 that Texas and these states in Dixie would raise an army and wage war against the United States of America. And one more footnote before I turn the microphone back to you. Recall that during the U.S. Civil War, there was a companion movement known as the Knights of the Golden Circle, who thought that Texas, instead of joining Virginia and Dixie and fighting Washington and the Lincoln government, should actually start fighting Mexico, oust the Spanish from Cuba, perhaps seize the northern coast of South America, speaking of what is today Venezuela and Colombia. And so there's always been this land lust, this lust for exploitation embedded in the settler class in Texas. And much of it has to do with the way that Texas fled from Mexican control in 1836. So Mexico abolishes slavery in 1830. There are colonists Europeans of European ancestry who are in Texas. They're there. They're doing land grabs. They're also bringing enslaved, kidnapped and enslaved African people or people of African descent to be the labor force in Texas. So Mexico declares slavery is abolished. Is that the trigger? Is that the trigger for the independence then in 18? 18- 35, 1836. Is that the trigger for the war? It certainly is. And of course, the background is the hysteria 
that suffused the slave-owning class throughout the Americas because of the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, a revolt of unpaid labor, a revolt that could easily be interpreted as a revolt of the working class. And that led to the world being turned upside down with many of the slave owners fleeing to neighboring New Orleans and reference here the fact that when the settlers led by Stephen F. Austin and Sam Houston revolted against Mexico, it was not just their enterprise within the four corners of Texas. They received maximum support from New Orleans in particular. And one of the points that I tried to make in this book is the collaboration between French settlers in North America and the so-called Anglo settlers. This is not only seen through the lens of New Orleans, it's also seen through the lens of the point that the so-called Confederate States of America, uh, some of its major leaders, such as PGT Beauregard, were of French origin, and that France was a major backer of the Republic of Texas, so-called. It's interesting to note that France had seized Algeria in 1830. And it's interesting that once again, one of these people we're told is a hero. Speaking of Alexis de Tocqueville, the Frenchman who wrote this these books about the United States, which U.S. patriots still read and assign in classes, like many of his class, he was fervently anti-African, fervently anti-Algerian, in fact, called for liquidation of the Algerians as a people. And it's that kind of ethos that then filtered its way across the Atlantic. And you should also know that many Frenchmen made their way to Dixie, made their way to Texas, joining the slave-owning class. And if I may, I should also mention at this point that a key part of this book emerges when during the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865, France seizes that opportunity of the Lincoln government being distracted by trying to suppress an internal armed rebellion by occupying Mexico. And so the idea was, amongst the Texas settler class, was that after the Confederate surrender in 1865, they were going to move in mass, perhaps, probably, with their enslaved property in tow, and get the French occupiers to reverse the decree abolishing slavery and then continue enslavement of Africans from that point forward. And that puts a gloss on the June 19th holiday because the June 19th holiday, which of course I support, needless to say, that is to say this idea that on June 19th, 1865, the soldiers in blue of the U.S. Army show up in Galveston, Texas and tell the enslaved that, hey, didn't you people know that you were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation? They say, no way. But of course, that's as ludicrous as it sounds. Uh, They were well aware that 
of the Emancipation Proclamation. But the question was, how do you enforce it when Texas is in rebellion? And so what happens is that the forces of General Granger, who show up in Galveston on June 19th, 1865, are there to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation more than anything else. But that was more than a notion because of the French occupation across the border. So what happens is that the arrival of General Granger and his troops allows more recruitment of black soldiers who then join in a pincers movement with progressive Mexicans led by Benito Juarez. Of course, you know that Ciudad Juarez across from El Paso, Texas is named after him. And they wind up crushing the French occupation. The well-known black American historian, George Washington Williams, was amongst the black soldiers who were involved in helping to liberate Mexico from French rule. And of course, I'm sure you also know, as a footnote, that Cinco de Mayo, the Chicano holiday, comes from an important battle over the French occupiers in 1862 in Mexico. In any case, what happens is that there is another Juneteenth, June 19th, 1867, when the combined forces of Juarez and the men in blue, heavily black, wind up capturing Maximilian, the French puppet, executing him and putting paid to this idea that Mexico would reverse the abolition decree and reassert enslavement of Africans. And so in some ways, June 19th, 1867, the second Juneteenth uh, brings us closer to the abolition of slavery than the original Juneteenth, June 19th, 1865, because we know that even after June 19th, 1867, and in fact, to this very day, there's still a kind of neo-slavery. It's called euphemistically wage theft. And so it's an ongoing struggle. And I should mention one more point, which is that the French also take advantage of their colonial role in Africa to bring across the Atlantic scores, hundreds of black soldiers to fight against Juarez and the black soldiers in blue, the black American soldiers in blue. And what happens is that after they're defeated, some of these black soldiers from what is now known as Chad in Africa, they defect. <laughs> they wind up residing in Mexico. Some of them probably cross the border. It would be an interesting genealogical effort to see how many black Americans today are actually descended from those African soldiers who crossed the Atlantic in the 1860s. Gerald, one of the important elements or features of your books, of your multiple books on on the origin of what became the United States, the origin of capitalism transplanted from Europe onto the, onto the shores of North America and other European capitalisms transported or placed into other parts of the hemisphere, is you draw the connections and the, the hemispheric character of all of the struggles, the reactionary struggles to hold on to what had been the status quo the systems of slavery, for instance, and also the interconnectedness of the movements for human liberation, the movements for, for justice. And that's why I really encourage all of our listeners to, to read as many of your books as possible, because 
obviously you people won't get this kind of basic historical perspective, not to mention the facts. Almost anywhere in the academic world, perhaps except for some of the courses you teach and a handful of other progressive academics, and certainly not from the mainstream media. With that said, I want to go back to this, the interconnectedness of the events in Europe, say in the French Revolution that begins with the storming of the Bastille in 1789, goes through many complicated stages and phases but there is that charter document, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, articulated even while France is embracing slavery in the French colonies, like the colony that was later named Haiti. But the interconnectedness of the different stages of the French Revolution and its impact on Haiti, and then Haiti's own massive, historic, epic-shaping revolution that impacts again on France, and then most importantly, impacts on the rest of the Caribbean, impacts on what's going on inside of the southern states, especially of the United States. And then that impacts again as we go forward a couple decades with what happens in Texas. The Frenchman that you're talking about, who emigrated after the Haitian Revolution to New Orleans or to other southern states, they had been the French white bourgeoisie in Haiti, the slave-owning class, and there was a lower strata of whites there as well. But they, having been defeated by the Haitian Revolution, come to the United States. Now, at that time, and tell me if I'm wrong, Gerald, but during that time in the 1790s, the French Assembly, the National Assembly, under the pressure of the Haitian Revolution, declares the end of slavery, that France is no longer supporting slavery of any kind anywhere, including any of the French colonies. And yet there is the counter-revolution that, or the post-Napoleonic counter-revolution after Napoleon's attempted counter-revolution in Haiti. And here we are back in the middle of the 19th century, where what you're telling us is that France is back in the, in the business of slavery. Let's just talk about how this goes through these different stages the interconnectedness, and just a, one more connecting point, at the same time that the U.S. is waging war and taking half of Mexico in 1848, you have the revolutions in Europe in 1848, epic-shaping revolutions that were ultimately defeated. Anyway, let's just talk about how this interconnectedness is so significant, because I'll say as a socialist, as a Marxist, when we look at these unfolding struggles, there hasn't been any major event in any part of certainly of the Western world, but I would say this would be true globally, that's not impacted by the international feature of these struggles. Again, going back to the significance of internationalism and the interconnectedness of events. Well, first of all, yes. In the early 1790s, you had a monumental decree from Paris seeking to abolish slavery. That's referred to in my book on the Haitian Revolution, Confronting Black Jacobins. And yes, the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, unleashes a general crisis of the entire slave system that can only be resolved with its collapse, including, not least, in North America. We all know, I'm sure, about Haiti making the strategic decision that its revolutionary process would not be safe unless and until a slavery was abolished hemisphere-wide, which is one of the reasons why many of the most significant 
slave rebellions uh, in the Americas, including that of Gabriel in Richmond circa 1800, including the revolt in Louisiana circa 1811, including a revolt in Barbados circa 1816, including the revolt led by Denmark Bessie in Charleston, South Carolina, who, of course, as a sailor, had sailed in and out of Haiti, and presumably part of the plan was to put the freed enslaved on boats and depart in mass for Haiti and the Caribbean. That's 200 years ago. That, too, has Haitian fingerprints all over it, and the same holds true for the Nat Turner slave revolt of 1831. And we all know that the Haitians promised assistance to those on the northern coast of South America, speaking of today's Colombia and Venezuela, on the pledge and premise that if they were successful in revolting against Spanish colonial rule, that they would abolish slavery. And to an extent, that promise was kept. And it's no accident that with the abolition of slavery, not least in the United States, you see the rise of unions post-1865, revivified unions, I should say, in North America, in the United States of America, the struggle for eight-hour day, for example, which is a major victory, a early major victory for the U.S. working class, all connected ultimately to the umbilical cord that goes back to the island that was once called Hispaniola. But even before then, you should let your mind reel back to the middle of the 18th century when the British, still in control of what is now the United States, wage war against the French, the so-called Seven Years' War, 1756 to 1763, which leads to London seizing Quebec. Of course, there's still an issue hanging with regard to the predominantly French-speaking province that is Quebec. And then going to the settlers, led by land grabber number one, George Washington, asking for a rise in taxes to help to subsidize this, George Washington and his class are not keen on that because London had also issued the Royal Proclamation expressing displeasure, continuing to move west, seizing land of Native Americans so that land speculators like George Washington could profit. That combined with the Somerset's case of 1772, where London abolished slavery in England itself, quickly spreading throughout the United Kingdom, injects fear and loathing into the slave-owning class, led by George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Patrick Henry, et al. And so they decide to revolt against British rule. France goes into debt in order to subsidize these settlers in North America as payback to London, because, of course, the conflict between those two powers continues to this day and stretches back centuries. And these settlers would not have triumphed over the Redcoats, but for this French assistance, which makes even more curious, as we used to say back in the day, why the United States was so upset by, say, Cuban troops in Southern Africa and Angola uh, fighting apartheid troops because the United States would not have achieved its own independence without French assistance. But that going into debt then causes a crisis <laughs> in France that leads to the French Revolution, which then, of course, unleashes forces that lead to the Haitian Revolution 
And of course, we've already sketched what happens following the Haitian Revolution. Indeed. Gerald, let's go into, as time is running down here, back to the modern era. Again, you talk about the counter-revolution of 1836 and the roots of U.S. fascism. Now, fascism is a word that's tossed around frequently. Usually it's used with anger. It's not necessarily presented in a precise way. And maybe there's not a precise universal definition of fascism. But certainly we understand that very, very far-right forces, forces of political and social reaction, having been pushed back by the struggles, say, in the civil rights movement, the Black Liberation Movement in the 1950s and 60s, and really for more than a century, two centuries, three centuries, and then the attendant movements that also arose in the 1960s, like the youth movement, the anti-war movement, the women's movement, later what was at that time called the gay rights movement, there was an expansion of democracy. And we can see by the recent turn of events in the last few years, that basic social and economic and political rights, things that we associate with democracy are under attack. The evisceration of abortion rights, of this war against women and those who need abortions is mind-blowing, really, when you think about the fact that the majority of the population, including the majority of Republicans, support abortion rights. It's been rolled back. It's been the right-wing Supreme Court, unelected, six individuals, the tip of the spear of the right-wing of the ruling class. They abolished abortion rights as a national right. At the same time, they're now attacking marriage equality. They're attacking black voting rights. I could go on and on. There's all sorts of things that are up for grabs right now. And Clarence Thomas is basically saying, look, if it wasn't in the 1787 Constitution or in one of the following amendments, it's not a right. You might have thought you had a right, but in fact, anything that you have that you value and appreciate as an expansion of democracy, we're going to take it back from you. They're on a roll. Right now, the Supreme Court has accepted the Moore case from North Carolina, which has to do with gerrymandering and whether according to the so-called originalists on the Supreme Court, only state legislatures, not state constitutions, not state governors, but state legislatures, and they alone have the right to determine what the electoral ballot will look like in that state. And of course, you know, in the 2000 Supreme Court ruling five to four Bush versus Gore, the Supreme Court majority ruled that individual citizens have no constitutional right to elect electors, meaning that there could even be, like Donald Trump wanted there to be, and certainly tried to have happen on January 6th, a reformation of how government is formed in the United States, a new form of government in a way, a government that's even less democratic than the one we have. I mean, you can see, not you, but we can see all of these signs, the writing on the wall, that the right wing is indeed on the march. And at the same time, a huge part of the population is 100% against all of this, but yet not mobilized. And of course, you can't snap your fingers and create mass movements, but clearly we need a mass movement. Anyway, we're coming to the end, so I'm going to leave you with the final word. Well, first of all, part of the problem is that there's a rather Pollyanna version of history that 
is all too common, including among some of our friends on the left, including by some who consider themselves to be revolutionary, in the sense that they don't necessarily inspect the contradictions in their discourse. I mean, for example, they'll celebrate the uh, Bill of Rights, for example, of the United States Constitution, and then glide past the fact that the Second Amendment, mandating a well-regulated militia so that the settlers could more easily organize to suppress revolts of the enslaved and revolts of the indigenous population so their land could be taken. That's supposed to be this great victory for progress, according to some of our so-called revolutionary friends. Or even you look at the First Amendment, uh, that is to say this so-called freedom of religion, which is an attempt to bypass the religious conflicts of Europe, Protestant versus Catholic versus Jewish, and forge them all into a so-called white settler bloc that could more readily seize the land of the Native Americans and keep the Africans in check. And so to begin with, we really need an agonizing reappraisal of what we thought we knew or what we think we know about U.S. history, because when we go through that process, I dare say we'll come to the conclusion that many of the predicates of fascism amongst, of course, one of the more frequently cited definitions is that of the Bulgarian communist leader, Georgi Dimitrov in the 1930s, who faced down the Nazis after the Reichstag fire, was the open, naked, terroristic dictatorship of the most reactionary elements in the ruling elite. Now, of course, there are different kinds of capitalism and there are different kinds of fascism. It's not necessarily a cookie cutter mode that we're talking about. I mean, for example, you have capitalism in Canada, but you have single-payer health care in Canada. You have a sizable state sector in France, but it's a capitalist country. You have something similar in Sweden. And so what I think we should realize is that even though historically fascism has arisen in order to repress a surging left and left-led political parties, it's not preordained hmm. that that will be the case particularly in a settler society that has experienced genocide and has experienced mass enslavement, it's no accident that the University of Georgia historian Claudio Sant in his books on the Cherokee removal, the ouster of the Cherokees from mostly Georgia and the Southeast quadrant of the United States of America, uh, he's amongst the many scholars who points to how the Nazis in Germany pointed to what happened to the indigenous population of North America that is to say that there was hardly a whimper, they thought, or an attempt to forge international solidarity with the indigenous population. So the Germans thought that they could get away with this similarly in the 1930s. Or, for example, going back to their colonial adventure in southwest Africa, now Namibia, there was a similar process. In fact, some of the same Nazis who raised their ugly heads in the 1930s were in on the ground floor a few decades earlier when the Herero were liquidated in mass in today's Namibia. So we have a very serious problem that we're facing, and I'm sure that the January 6 hearings should have uh, helped to establish or reaffirm uh, that particular idea. And I should also say that even though the Dimitrov definition that I just quoted approvingly speaks of the ruling class, it would be a mistake to assume that there is no mass base for fascism. 
either in Germany in the 1930s or Italy in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s or the United States. I mean, you have a 75 million strong block that cuts across class lines, mostly descendants of settlers or those who resemble the descendants of settlers or Trumpistas and are willing to go to the mat, whatever the polls might say. And so we have a very formidable obstacle to overcome. Certainly, as you suggest, a mass movement is the order of the day, because going back to the 19th century, we should never forget that in as the Haitian Revolution, as we call it, was unfolding, in other French Caribbean islands, you had slavery abolished. But with the return of counter-revolution, that decree was overturned, and it took decades more to have abolition assert itself in Martinique and Guadeloupe, for example. So what we should realize is that our victories, and we have had victories, our victories are in danger and in peril unless we are organized and vigilant that the most elementary rights that many of us have taken for granted can be eviscerated and dissolved as with the Dobbs case coming out of Mississippi, unless we are sufficiently vigilant and organized. And that's the grim news that I'm delivering today. We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author, as I said, of many books. And today we were talking about his latest book, The Counter-Revolution, of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, The Roots of U.S. Fascism. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back next Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 